Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. With host Ranger Doug. Here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 30th program and the 15th episode in our series on Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'll be joined by guests we've had before, Dr. Brian Downing, Dean Chang, and just to cross up the audience as well as the host, Dr. David Johnson and David Johnson. They're two Johnsons who are close friends of ours and very happy to have them with us tonight. So without further ado, let us let the guests introduce themselves. Dr. Brian Downing, would you please give a short background and uh, an opening statement? Over to you, sir. Uh, Brian Downing here, three years in the Army back uh, in the olden days of the 70s, reached the august rank of uh, acting Jack Buck Sergeant, went on to graduate school, uh, college and graduate school, Georgetown University of Chicago, respectively, postdoc Harvard, been pretty much an independent analyst ever since. Thanks, and back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, then. Dean, sir, over to you, please. Hi, I'm Dean Cheng. I'm the Senior Research Fellow for Chinese Political and Security Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. I've spent uh, some time at uh, the Center for Naval Analysis, SAIC, and the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this evening, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. Pleasure to have you. Then, Dr. Dave Johnson, sir, over to you. Yeah, I'm uh, Dave Johnson. I'm a retired Army officer, 25 years in infantry quartermaster and field artillery. I retired with Colonel in 97. I was fortunate enough to get a PhD in history from Duke on the Army's nickel. And when I retired, I went to work at SASC briefly, then joined RAND in 1999, where I studied military innovation, joint operations, and strategy. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Great. And then I have the great honor and pleasure of having a second Dave Johnson on the program. So we'll call one of these gentlemen Dr. Dave and the other one just Dave. So at any rate, both are good friends of mine and soon will be good friends of each other. So Dave Johnson, then over to you, sir. Yeah, hi. I'm I'm also Dave Johnson. I'm the executive director of C4ADS, the Center for Advanced Defense Studies, a Washington, D.C.-based nonpartisan nonprofit uh, leveraging unique technology, talented people, and publicly available information to address complex global security issues. I uh, graduated from West Point, infantry special forces officer, 25 years in the Army as well. Army strategist, went to the Sorbonne for a studied history of strategy. Look forward to the rest of the conversation. And thank you. And remember, I'm just Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction since I'm only the dealer in this card game. So let's move into the program. Brian, it'll be up to you to open the program by describing what we've seen in these last uh, weeks. Where where are Russia and Ukraine today in the war? Well, right now uh, we're seeing Belarus mass troops on its border with Ukraine. I think it's a feint. I think it's an effort to get... Uh, the Ukrainians to keep more troops there than they need to. Uh, I think it's transparently a bluff because the army of Belarus is very small. It's overwhelmingly conscript with 18 months military service. They're not going to cross any border. Russia itself has dropped its bold, aggressive moves. The Blitzkrieg on Kiev and the pincer movement in the Donbass, they have gone back to what one might call the Russian way of war. Heavy artillery destroying everything in front of it, 
and moving troops ahead. This is how they won World War II. This is how they conquered Chechnya. This is how they've suppressed the rebels in Syria. I think Ranger Doug predicted this a few weeks ago, and now we've seen it. We're seeing remarkable, unexpected resoluteness in Russian troops as they attack in the Donbass. They are fighting very hard. We haven't seen that. I have to think that the Russians have taken the best officers and the best troops and put them into composite units. Can't swear that's true, but that's my read. I'm just puzzled by this determination. Uh, we certainly didn't see it two or three weeks ago. It follows from that that the other units, Russian units, aren't very good. It also follows that if these Russian troops are ground down in the Donbass, the composite units, the army will be in deep trouble. Ukraine is giving up ground slowly and grudgingly. Russian troops are taking a few kilometers here and there, but they're losing lots of troops. The Ukrainians are fighting a defense in depth, give up ground, go back to the next uh, line of defense, the next town, fight from there. An interesting thing is going off in the south, far away from the Donbass, uh, about 75 kilometers north of Kharkiv. The Ukrainians are launching an offensive. They are driving the Russians back. One BTG is said to have uh, pretty much collapsed. And I think we could see Kharkiv isolated and coming into being besieged in coming weeks. There are guerrilla operations in Kherson, and there's also guerrilla fighting in the land bridge. Uh, it could get very difficult for Russia in those areas. Back to you, Ranger. Thank you, Brian. That's a great opening. I remember saying on previous programs that I believed that there might be the possibility that the Russians had some troops that were preparing to take advantage of better terrain conditions. They might have had better training because even when you put together a composite unit, if they've not trained and exercised, they don't necessarily have the ability to jump to the level of combined arms synchronization that produces the desired results. I'm thinking that there were some units that were kept not necessarily in reserve, but they simply sent piecemeal out first to try to disclose enemy intentions, uh, figure out how the world would respond. And we'll have to wait and see. Of course, just like in World War II, the history will not emerge from this for quite a while. Dean, then, sir, over to you, please. Well, I think following on that excellent overview of and review of what is going on between uh, Russia, Ukraine, also Belarus, I think it's worth noting again that the global food situation continues to be affected by this war. We are seeing food inflation across a variety of accounts. Some of the American food inflation is, in fact, due to this war. But in particular, we are now starting to see in a number of less developed countries in Africa and the Middle East, some of the impacts. We've seen, for example, the Tunisian government cracking down internal operations and dissent. And the reason why that matters is because the Arab Spring from about a decade ago began in Tunisia and also began because of rising food prices. And we've seen major protests in Iran that ultimately come back in part to food prices, but also to unhappiness with the regime. Again, if we look back about a decade to the Arab Spring, we saw a wave of protests, uh, demonstrations, revolutions, all of which got triggered by rising food prices. So as this war grinds on with no evidence that I can see of either side being interested in a negotiated settlement, 
both sides settling into a meat grinder offense and defense. What we're probably going to see is a steady rise in food prices as fertilizer remain offline. Ukrainian grain exports remain bottled up as Russia continues its blockade of the Black Sea. We're going to see, I think, growing instability around the world, not in favor of one side or the other, but simply because locals, whether you're in Cairo or in Santiago or elsewhere, are going to be saying, our food prices are too high and we can't feed our children. And we don't particularly care what happens between Russia and Ukraine, but where is the food going to come from? Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. And Dr. Dave Johnson, please, sir, over to you. Yeah, so we've been talking about this a number of weeks, and I think it's finally starting to dawn in the West that the Russian way of war is slow and grinding as brutal as it is, is, you know, effective. The Russians have now taken the majority of Severodonetsk which is like the last big enclave in that oblast. Uh, and Zelensky let loose with something I haven't heard him say, I think trying to garner support that Ukrainian losses this week have been 100 dead and 500 wounded a day, which is a really astonishing figure when you think about it. And I'm still concerned you know, with their ability to sustain this. We've sent some HIMARS. The most important part of that, I think, is also counterfire radars. But we're sending ammunition. Uh, I read one place that one of the issues for the Ukrainians is that most of their weapons are old Russian weapons with Russian ammunition. To the best of my knowledge, their arms industry does not produce enough ammunition to replace what they're shooting. So the one of the big important issues here for them with the M777s, you notice there's a big shipment of projectiles along with the new weapons, is to get the HIMARS rockets. Uh, the HIMARS kind of eats up the differential between the 777 and the, the Grad rockets, which are the, the kind of the range area that, you know, that the Ukrainians really get pounded with. But it's, uh, this is a war of attrition. I'm, you know, I just don't think it's settled yet. As Dean said, the repercussions worldwide of this. I mean, starvation picks no side, and you don't blame anybody but the guy who's trying, keeping you from having food in the local government, as we saw in the Arab Spring. The repercussions of this, we think, you know, gas prices is an issue in the United States. It is a minor inconvenience compared to what's going on with the shortage of wheat and cooking oil and other commodities throughout uh, the Middle East and Africa. So, you know, there's a, a real urgency in this war now. The other piece is... You know, how long is everybody going to hang in there together? Macron's already talking about, you know, Russia's going to have to be part of the international community when this is over. Zelensky is becoming more and more, you know, for good reason, you know, pretty difficult to change his views about getting what he thinks Ukraine has back. But, you know, the winter's not that far away. And the Europeans just announced they're going to, I think, stop oil imports by 90% by the winter. That's a big bite, and it's going to take, you know, it's going to have an effect with inflation and other things there in the wintertime. So this is a, still a dicey situation. And I, I think the other piece, we're still just hearing Ukrainian reporting. I wrote an article the other day about, you know, would we do better was the title, but all the hoopla about the, you know, the one bridge crossing being stopped. Well, the Russians have made seven other bridge crossings on that same river to get across for the offensive they're at. Those pictures of that crossing came from Ukrainian sources from the Ministry of, the, of Defense. So we still need to be a little sanguine about, you know, the information we're getting and be aware that we're not hearing a lot about what's happening with the Ukrainians. Back to you, Ranger Doug. 
Thank you, Dr. Dave. And then, Dave Johnson, over to you, sir. I really uh, was impressed by Dr. Dave's presentation. Uh, at two things. First is logistics is key, not just the maneuver discussion that we, we tend to focus on. And second is information. And he's 100% right that we're not getting unfiltered information. In fact, I was on a call with a, a large number of NGOs and other people in the area, and a figure came out that I'm not sure is accurate, but something like 65% casualties in territorial army units. So we're talking about some very, very, you know, yes, President Zelensky mentioned some casualties, but it could be a lot worse than we think it is. So the ground truth is, is a real challenge from as far away as we are watching this conflict. When we start thinking about the challenges of logistics, that's the friction of war that's out there. You know, people trying to move aid into the country, you know, are they having to drop a bribe to get their stuff on a truck? How much of our military gear, weapons, and everything else is making it actually to the front? Are we tracking this? Or are we going to find ourselves in another SIGAR situation like we did in Afghanistan, where we throw tons and tons of money at things? Not only that, but our aid package itself, when we started talking about throwing $44 billion at this problem set, you know, now when you want to get at it, you've got to follow certain rules to be eligible to do that. So you've got to be ITAR compliant if you're going to be providing training to Ukrainians, that kind of thing. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to be funded through those sources, and the Ukrainian government's not going to want to recognize you. So you may have all those NGOs and other people that are helping out at the beginning of the fight. Now there's kind of going to be a gap as this shifts to contractor labor, just like at the end of a fight, there's a gap as the contractor labor goes away and the NGOs and all the rest come back to pick up the slack. You know, so you're seeing... You know, logistics challenges there. When we talk about the Belarusians, you know, there's a discussion as well that part of the reason they may be mobilizing their stuff and pulling it out of uh, storage is that the Russians might want to use their equipment. Not necessarily that they're going to use it, but maybe some of this will be passed over to replace Russian losses. Uh, when we start talking about bringing things in like the HIMARS, we've got to realize that that requires training. Currently, you know, they're working on for the Border Patrol and other people within uh, Ukraine, people in the territorial army, they're working on 10 days of training from the time they're drafted to the time they're put on the front line. 10 days. So now we're talking about HIMARS systems uh, and other things like that. You know, we are talking as time goes on about a less and less professional army. We ran into this problem in the Civil War where the active army was pretty much hammered right away and then everything else was volunteers till the end, you know. Uh, and so you can't use some of those really cool tactics or you can't use some of the latest gear. And even in our army, which is modern and has highly educated NCO Corps and all of the rest, I remember sitting in Desert Storm and having radios issued to us and having the 18 Echo combo man told, figure it out and tell the boys how to use it. Most of that stuff just stayed in the back of the deuce and a half because we, we didn't have time to figure it out. Uh, you know, so uh, hopefully, uh, as Dr. Johnson pointed out, you know, we're, we're focused on how can we get them the type of ammunition and things that they can use right now? You know, how do we, how do we replenish their stockages of those things? Zulu line ammunition is, is available around the world. We had to get some in Afghanistan because some of our allies used uh, Russian-made weaponry. So, you know, that, that whole system is going to have to be worked out as well. We, you know, we as a nation, we can help with that and not just worry about providing U.S. arms or European arms, et cetera. Anyway, that's kind of uh, where I go with this, and that is watch the logistics if you want to see where this thing's going to play out in the end. Thank you, Dave. Then uh, at this point, we need to take our first commercial break, and we'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. 
Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 30th program, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, and our 15th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. So now we're on to the war aim question, the war aims of Ukraine and Mr. Zelensky versus Russia and Mr. Putin. And that first goes to Dean Cheng. Dean, please. I think that at this point, the war aims of the two sides really haven't changed that much from week to week. For the Ukrainians, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, One, obviously, regime survival. But two, making sure that whatever emerges on the other side of this conflict is viable, which means that they have to maintain access to the Black Sea, which means that they uh, want to hold as much as they can of eastern Ukraine and not cede uh, territory. And in particular, if they can, to break back into the land bridge connecting the breakaway republics with Crimea so that uh, those areas are not a single block that can then be absorbed by the Russians. And for the Russians, uh, at this point, it seems to be a somewhat more limited goal of uh, keeping what they've taken, uh, expanding their their holdings so that they can, in fact, have a single large uh, block that presumably would be open for annexation. What 
I think both countries are also looking to is to best position themselves politically, diplomatically, and militarily for after the conflict. Russia is going to be fairly isolated, regardless of what President Macron has to say. Um, So I think we are going to see uh, expansion of ties to China. Ukraine is going to be making a very hard pitch to be better integrated into Europe, even if they can't quite join NATO. And NATO itself, I think, is going to be expanded. um, And that is going to have repercussions, which in turn, uh, Mr. Putin is going to be looking at very unhappily. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. And now passing that question along to Dr. Dave Johnson. Dave, over to you. Yeah, so I think the area what David, the other David Johnson said, and that is coupled with logistics is the element of time. And I think time is on neither side, quite frankly. And I think there's th- there's really three sides here. It's Ukraine, Russia, and the supporters of Ukraine. There's peripheral actors supporting Russia. But, you know, the folks that are supporting Ukraine, you know, this is, a, as I said earlier, there's, it's starting to have consequences. There was an interesting discussion the other day with a State Department representative who essentially said, you know, what are the long-term goals of the United States? He said a sovereign and secure Ukraine. Well, that is, you know, what is that? Is that Ukraine minus Crimea and the Donetsk and, you know, the land bridge to, you know, across the south? Uh, it wasn't clear. So there's there's some wiggle room in there. I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room for Zelensky, given the way he stated his war aims. I think the pressure on him, though, is going to come from, as he just keeps getting ground down, uh, his options are going to become more and more limited. Uh, and it's a race against time to see which one, you know, gets through this. The great quote I used in a paper the other day about from Clausewitz essentially says, in a war of exhaustion, don't become exhausted first. And that's what we're in right now, I think. Western views are that the brave Ukrainians will, you know, because they're better trained and have more, better morale and are motivated, will last out longer than the Russians will. We don't have any evidence for that at this point. We hear reports of Russians, you know, just deserting, refusing orders, whatever. But we've not seen the Russians stop their offensive yet. And in fact, it appears to be much better than the East than it was anywhere else. So, you know, war aims, I think Putin is, you know, whatever he wants is what it's going to be. Like I said, on the Independence Day, when everybody was saying he's got to proclaim some great victory, whatever's going on that day is going to be whatever is perfect in his speech. So it just, it, whatever he decides is right is what's going to be right for Russia. Zelensky is under a lot of different kinds of pressures, I'm afraid. And the West, I think, is going to be under additional increasing pressure from their populaces. So we'll see as the days and the weeks essentially grind on. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Great. Thank you, then. Dave Johnson, over to you, sir. Well, I don't think uh, their war aims necessarily uh, have changed much. You know, take a French view where you've got uh, the leader always has to think about the geography of the nation, the identity of its population, and the geo-economy of resources. And Russia is still in the, in the game of control the Western corridor, invasion corridor. Uh, they don't assume NATO is benign. And they do have allies. And even though Turkey's a NATO member, they may face enough pressure to prevent the joining of Finland and Sweden into NATO, you know. So there's there's a lot of kind of war aims that he's trying to accomplish here by simply demonstrating that he follows through on and, and is committed to what he's doing to his own population, politically, internal politics. So there could be internal drivers to his decision-making processes. And then at the same time, any Russian leader is going to be wanting to control everything up to the Carpathian Mountains. 
Now, how he gets there and how long it takes them to do that, that's a different matter. You know, right now you've got all of that portion of Crimea, Donbass, and other enclaves of uh, Russian control in the West. And in terms of their joining the, the global economic community, you know, there was a reason that Ukraine was not part of the EU before this invasion. They have not met the counter-corruption standards. Unfortunately, President Zelensky is listed in the Panama Papers. Uh, you know, so there, there are elements that are going to make it difficult at the end of this to simply roll things back into a nice, neat chessboard-like Westphalian, you know, these guys are red, these guys are blue, Warsaw Pact, bad, NATO, good, geopolitical framework. Things are a lot different. A lot of it will depend upon transnational, globalized networks, social networks, both corporate and criminal. That's how I see the, the war aims of Russia is not gonna, aren't going to change. Zelensky is in a corner, although I do think that anyone who listens to the public pronouncements of politicians before they're going to have to negotiate is probably hearing the initial position and not necessarily what they will eventually deal with. You know, no new taxes, read my lips. So President Zelensky may have backed himself publicly in the corner by saying something, but that doesn't mean that it's not a posturing in order to get a better deal on the other end of the table. Anyway, thank you very much. That's all I got. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you very much, Dave. Then, Brian, over to you, sir. Well, I think Russia still thinks it can conquer the whole country. How quickly they think they can do it isn't clear. But I believe they think they can just grind down the Ukrainian army and then take advantage, uh, moving very quickly. They are preparing naval operations in the Black Sea. We're seeing landing craft moving around. Uh, I have to think they have long-term plans. I think they're long-term plans of taking Odessa. They're also moving troops around Zaporizhia, which is in the south central area. Um, if, if they think they can do these things while still fighting in the Donbass and still fighting for Herson in the southwest, well, I, I think there's just mass deception, boasting, and lying up and down the Russian chain of command. I don't think they truly know what they can do. The war in the Donbass is pretty much becoming an artillery war. Um, <clears throat> just as Dien Bien Phu was at uh, the early stages of that siege. You know, the Viet Minh put their guns up around, ringed them around the various satellite bases and pounded the French positions. The French fought back. And when the French artillery commander realized he couldn't silence the Viet Minh guns, he committed suicide. And we all know Dien Bien Phu fell a few weeks later. I'm hopeful that the counter-battery systems that uh, Dr. Johnson mentioned will come to the fore in coming weeks, that they will be able to find and neutralize the Russian artillery, because that's Russia's best tool right now, the artillery, and that, that's where we are. It's, a, it's pretty much an artillery war. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Then uh, at this point, we need to take a commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. 
We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is our 30th program, Veterans Radio Hour 2.0, and our 15th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. And now we'll move to the question where we consider the effects of the war on the world at large, including not only the U.S., but the EU, China, uh, certain other countries that may experience results of famine, and the international organizations such as the UN, NATO. Any comments that you may have? Over to you, Dr. Dave. Yeah, so I think in the U.S., the decision to release the larger AIDS package, uh, which included high Mars, as I said earlier, there was debate about whether or not to send longer range. The high Mars has uh, two different pods. One is the shorter range, MR, Gemler's rounds, the longer-range ATACMs that shoots over 150 miles is the one that the president did not want to release. They released the shorter-range ones, about 40-mile range, that with the proviso that the Ukrainians would not shoot into Russia, which is a pretty big deal to start releasing that level of weapons. The Germans are also sending more air defense systems. There's a huge tranche of javelins and switchblades and other things in this package. So it kind of signals... I think the administration not, is not just in this, but they obviously know that this is a critical moment in the the counter-artillery fight, and they're going to supply those things. I think, you know, so far the polling I've seen says 70% of the people in the United States support NATO supporting Ukraine. So that, that's pretty, 70% of anything in the United States is like an overwhelming majority. In the NATO and EU, we've seen some kind of talks about how we're going to get this done. We have already talked about Macron. In France, in Poland, the president of Poland stood up and said, you know, they sh- we will take, you know, the Ukraine should get every square centimeter of the Ukraine back before this is over. So there's, what would you expect the president of Poland to say? But it's it's not a universal sense of, you know, we're all going to come through this with a, a solid negotiating position. Because the further east you go, the more 
you know, people are worried about the Russians and a little bit intractable about doing anything. This, in some people's minds, this is almost like giving the Sudetenland back to the Germans. It just leads to more. So the EU, there's always been, you know, like you know, was mentioned by Brian, which is an incredibly important point. The EU is not a model of, you know, democratic, well-run, non-uncorrupt governance before this. So there is some foot dragging about it's going to take some time. Van Leyden was on the other day saying that well, it's a process and it takes a certain amount, which meant this isn't going to happen overnight. And they may fast track it, but that track may be 5,000 miles long on a train that goes a mile an hour. Finally, I guess I'm going to defer just a little bit about the world. We talked already about the, the commodity shortages, which I think are just starting to be really felt. And they were going to become pronounced and they're going to have an impact. Uh, on the PRC, I will say nothing about that other than Dean Chang will tell us everything we need to know. Back to you, Ranger Doug. I second that emotion. So uh, then, David EA, over to you, sir. So, I, as I already mentioned, you know, the game of nations, so to speak, going on, I learned once upon a time when I was in Somalia and other places that someone always joins the coalition to screw it up, you know? So there is a chance that, you know, Turkey's national interest or uh, interest in a relationship with Russia may prevent uh, Sweden and Finland from being able to join NATO, which of course would be essential for the Russians as well, because you know that's an existential threat in their mind. Is, it, because NATO is not good guys. You know we have a tendency to see ourselves as the good guys, but from their perspective, they are justified in being paranoid about an attack from NATO. So I think the impact of the current fighting on NATO has been to strengthen the alliance and make people aware that uh, it's not a useless tool. And I think that uh, the impact on the European Union has been to temporarily highlight some of the differences between the various nations. While they are unified in dealing with commodity shortages, but it does highlight the differences in how they deal with that and how they see their role in the world. I remember that uh, Charles de Gaulle used to say, you know, il faut jouer un grand politique, you know, in other words, he wanted, he, he wanted to keep France uh, in a position to play the Russians off against the Americans, you know, which gave them extra power and, and influence in, in the great game, so to speak. In terms of commodities discussions. I think we've already covered most of that. There's you know, instabilities going on around the world. Again, I'll defer to Dean on, the, on, on China at this point. Uh, I think China's still playing its game. You know, Just because we're focused on the Ukraine, as someone mentioned before we started the, the show, uh, doesn't mean that the rest of the world's gone to sleep and nothing else is happening. Uh, we still have North Korean issues, you know, taking advantage of people's attention being elsewhere. Still have uh, issues with maritime militias, and you have issues with Taiwan, and all kinds of challenges out there in terms of dealing with the Chinese Communist Party and its control of state power there. And that's about all I've got. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Great. Then thank you, Dave. Brian, over to you, sir. Well, uh, let's take another look at the expanding NATO membership. We have Sweden and Finland making the steps of joining NATO. And I think that's a tremendous chess move. That's what foreign policy is, at least when the shooting isn't going on. This certainly puts Kaliningrad and St. Petersburg in check, not checkmate, but check. Their fleets could be very easily, the Russian fleets there could be very easily bottled up. I think Russia and Lithuania have already cut off ground transportation between Russia and Kaliningrad, which is this exclave of 
Russia that was seized from Germany in 1945. It's the old Königsberg, the old home of the Teutonic Knights. And I think this move just has to underscore in Russian security bureaus just how badly this war is playing out for them. Uh, it just presents a whole nother headache for them up in the Baltic area. There's been some mention of the PRC. They certainly are not backing down. They are flying over Taiwanese airspace at least as much now as they have been in the past. I think they're trying to signal that we don't need Russia to achieve our foreign policy aims. Russia may be distracted, it may be crumbling even, but we can still do what we want to do. I don't think they really can. I think their whole model of taking Taiwan, which I don't really think is imminent by any means, would rely on Russian naval support in the area and Russian motions all along the Eurasian landmass to uh, divert Western attention. Interesting thing, we saw President Tsai of Taiwan holding a press conference, a photo op, where she's holding up uh, an anti-tank weapon, the sort of ones that are used in Ukraine, signaling the resourcefulness and the uh, resoluteness of the Taiwanese people to remain independent. Back to you, Ranger Duck. Thank you, Brian. And Dean, everybody's sitting with bated breath, waiting for you to wrap this one up. Over to you, sir. Well, I think that uh, with all the mention of the People's Republic of China, it's useful to consider some of the developments of the last couple of weeks in that regard. One is that uh, there have been some very large-scale intrusions by Chinese aircraft into the Taiwan Air Defense Identification Zone, and these are strike packages, it's very clear. Uh, fighters, bombers, electronic warfare aircraft, etc., tankers. So the Chinese are signaling, one, there is a world beyond Russia-Ukraine, but two, Notably, was a joint Chinese-Russian air patrol conducted over the Sea of Japan and also over into the East China Sea. Actually, it was a series of patrols. And this is notable for several reasons. One, it occurred during President Biden's visit to Asia. Uh, so it's very clear that this was a signal. But the fact that the Russians were willing to divert aircraft to do this, I think, is intended as a signal to the West. Sure, you can gang up on us. No, NATO is not a benign entity in Moscow's view, but we have our own friends. What is notable here is the tenor of Chinese messaging. There has been a growing effort in Chinese internal propaganda, uh, which then sort of slops over into the broader um, communication, that the Chinese don't necessarily see this as a Russia-Ukraine war. Increasingly, it's being portrayed as a Russian conflict with the West, uh, specifically the United States slash NATO. And that for the PRC, for Xi Jinping, if Russia were to lose devastating. If the sanctions were to truly cripple Russia's economy, then China would be left alone to confront a triumphant West. And that this is ultimately strategically not to China's benefit. Now, that doesn't mean that we should expect Chinese people's volunteers 2.0, that you know, 300,000, a million Chinese volunteers are going to suddenly show up in uh, Donbass or Luhansk fighting alongside the Russians. But what it does say is that Beijing very clearly does not have the same view of what is going on as we do clearly sees Russia as a more important strategic partner. I suspect that uh, there probably is, is a Chinese translation of, of what uh, Dave E.A. Johnson noted uh, from de Gaulle, 
that is that China wants to be a part of the great game and wants Russia to stay a part of that. And the longer this conflict drags on, the worse it presumably is going to be for Russia, the more it is going to leave China wondering whether the strategic balance is ultimately sliding against it. I think it's Sun Tzu, I hate quoting him, so forgive me for doing so here. I think it was Sun Tzu who said that no one ever benefits from a long war. And the longer this conflict goes on, the greater the strategic uncertainties are likely to be in a range of capitals. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. That was an excellent wrap-up. Then uh, at this point, we need to take a commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. back and here's your host ranger doug welcome back ladies and gentlemen this is our 30th program veterans radio hour 2.0 and our 15th in the series russia moves into ukraine so dean just to follow up on your question what i would like to ask you is i've heard reports read reports that at the meeting that occurred some time ago before the olympics with mr z and mr putin that it was obvious to some observers that Putin was markedly the junior partner in those discussions. Is that your information also? I mean, when you look at economics, when you look at scientific and technological developments, when you look at the state of the two countries' space programs, it is hard to see Russia as being a pure competitor with China. 
that in the relationship between Beijing and Moscow, Moscow's key strengths are obviously its physical size. Uh, it does have control over a lot of resources, many of which China wants uh, and is willing to buy. And it has a lot of nuclear weapons. The performance of Russian military forces in Ukraine arguably has undermined the power of the Russian conventional deterrent vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. And at the end of the day, China is simply richer. China can afford to do all sorts of things that Moscow on a good day can, would have to pick one were at best to. You know, China is the one that is talking about going to Mars uh, on its own, uh, uh, not with people, but with you know, space probes. Is talking about uh, expeditions to Jupiter, is conducting open ocean research, is flushing out multiple satellite constellations, is part of global supply chains. It outweighs Russia on the economic side. So, yes, I think that certainly for the near future, Moscow is definitely the junior partner in any Russia-China axis. Thank you. Wonderful answer. And Brian, I think you have something to say on this issue. I wonder if this Ukraine war is going to underscore to Putin and the Russian people what Dean is alluding to. That is that Russia is very much the junior partner. Well, the very essence of Putin's rule is the re-emergence of great Russian power, power prestige. We're back on the world stage. But we're seeing Russia becoming dependent on Chinese oil purchases to bolster up their currency. Uh, I, I think every Russian in the Far East knows that, in the Russian Far East province, that is, that uh, China is just becoming a little too influential there. And, of course, every Chinese school child learns that that area was taken away from China by Russian czars in centuries past. So I, I think this war might just be the catalyst for making Russians realize that they are losing out. They are a subordinate power now. They are losing out to the Chinese and add in certain racial connotations, racial uh, prestige that's very prevalent in Russian society. And uh, I think we could be seeing uh, an anti-Chinese backlash in Russia in coming years. Yes, and Dr. Dave, you have something to add, please, sir. Yeah, I think, you know, the just to be devil's advocate here, what you may be seeing is this, you know, forced marriage of convenience that will, you know, even though Russia is their junior partner, it's now got somebody that will actually, you know, align with it in a way that, you know, was thought impossible it was the origins, quite frankly, of the the big revelation by Nixon. So what if, you know, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, is stronger than, you know, anything we've been talking about? And that could present the West with a, you know, quite a challenge because you now have a an economic powerhouse in China with, you know, potentially global projection capabilities linked to a country that's just has resources that have not been exploited other than to, you know, create oligarchs, essentially, with a bunch of nuclear weapons. And if that ever came to a marriage, that could be a real, you know, a bipolar world where the buy is a lot different than it used to be. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dr. Dave. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a serious issue confronting the Russians right now, and that is, do they want to be a, a leading state or do they want to be a subordinate state? And I would, uh, as I've said on previous programs, not rule out the possibility that one day Russia, Ukraine will have mended their fences generations to come and we'll look to the West as a way to stave off the Chinese moving in from the East. It'll be an interesting world and hopefully we'll get a chance to see a little of it, at least in movies. So we'll need to take a break now for another commercial. 
We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. We'll be right back. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC... Veterans Disability Application Caddy is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. We're back, and here's your host, Ranger Doug. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're here on our 30th program on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 15th in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. We're hoping one day to do one on Russia Moves Out of Ukraine. But this brings us to the consideration of any peace talks, any ceasefire arrangements, any truce-type things going on. And I would pass that then to our friend, David E.A. Johnson. Dave, over to you, sir. So I think everything that goes on, whether it's in the physical world or it's in the information world, is part of a negotiation. You know, the whole Clausewitz war is policy by another means. That means that while the guns are firing, the diplomats are not falling silent. So there's a lot of people who are working towards some sort of negotiated peace settlement. As I've said in the past, however, and as we've kind of had hints talking about wars of exhaustion, if we look at what happened in North Korea and South Korea, where we picked a parallel and decided to have a truce signed by generals, not necessarily a peace treaty, I think the most likely outcome is some sort of at least temporary truce as people get worn down. Do I think that there will be a, first off, uh, will we have peace in our time? Absolutely not, because there's an imperative for the Russians, whoever the Russian leader is, control, if not annex, but control 
everything up to the Carpathian Mountain line. And that's all those states. And so they're always going to be seeking to do that in some way. They lost control of the Ukraine when Yanukovych was ousted. And so, you know, one of my first thoughts were that they were going to try to use their military force as a backup, but then have a political fight with party of regions and all of the rest of that in Ukraine to take that over. So the idea here, I think, is that um, a negotiated ceasefire of some kind when people get exhausted but not permanently. The Ukrainians will always be under a Russian threat. The best that they would hope for is to join with the EU in some way in order to counter that threat in the long run. And that's what their other states in the region are trying to do. Find a big brother to help them in that space. Currently, Zelensky has been saying that he's going to accept nothing. You know, he wants all of that land that was uh, ceded to Ukraine after by Khrushchev. You know, he wants the Crimea. He wants all of that back. And that's a great initial negotiating position. But unless you actually hold it, it's very hard to very hard to do. Uh, certainly he has the support of his people, although they're going to get war weary. And the challenge also with Donetsk and Donbass is the same that we ran into in Kosovo. Right. Uh, you've got a population of Albanians that grows larger inside of Serbian territory and then wants to break off as a separate state, call themselves Kosovars in Kosovo. You know, the West kind of backed that. But here you have a population of Russians in the Donbass region, and they want to break off and form separate republics, theoretically, but we're not allowing that to happen. So even if they got back the Donbass, would there be some kind of purge of, of Russian you know, citizens there that wanted to say, or separatists or whatever you want to call them? It's going to be very interesting to see how this, this plays out, because there'd have to be protections for the Russian population of the Donbass region before, I think, any settlement can be had. But that's pretty much all I've got for you there, Ranger Doug. Okay, well then, Dr. Dave, over to you. Yeah, this will be very short. I think the, we're still at a place where the Russians think they can win. And like Brian said, whether that's logical or not, they're grinding along. And I think they will keep doing it as long as they see if they can make progress at a cost that doesn't preclude them from doing that. I think the Ukrainians believe that as long as they have strong Western support, they won't lose. So you're in a place right now where there's it's uncertain how this is going to turn out militarily. And so the political you know, wiggle room on both sides is contingent on that outcome. And we just don't know yet, nor do the Ukrainians or the Russians. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dr. Davey. I'm, I'm going to chime in on this one a little bit. If you remember at the time the war was just heating up, we found out that in these enclaves in the Donbass and even in Crimea, there were ethnic Russians who considered themselves Ukrainian and were very concerned about the invasion, not just from the perspective that they would find their Ukrainian neighbors upset with them, but that they actually had become identified as uh, Ukrainians. And therefore, uh, it made things a little more difficult. And with the uh, analogy that Dave Johnson made on the situation in Kosovar. There, the Kosovar Albanians had outcompeted uh, the native Serbian population or had begun to population-wise. And, and so it became a matter of majority-minority. Whereas in the Ukrainian areas, these ethnic Russians who were put there by Stalin or others at a time when it was necessary to try to homogenize some of these uh, Soviet satellites, I'm not sure they've begun to outcompete the whole country, but maybe in those areas they do. Also, I've heard just today the report that there is quite a bit of pressure building up in the world to get somebody to do something, possibly the Chinese, to shut this thing down. Because it's not only that we see prices rising, it's if you look at the futures markets and the bond markets, there is a financial and a food and commodities and materials crisis inbound. And if the, the several effects of these multiple things hit at once, 
it means something that we haven't anticipated in decades. So there are those who are saying, this has got to stop. We need to find a way to get this thing sorted out. Look for international pressure to change the situation. Okay, well, then that brings us to our last question, which is, let's assess what we may see in the coming weeks. And that goes back to Brian Downing to lead off. Brian, please, sir. I'm going to amplify on some things I said about uh, the fight for Herson in the South. I think we're going to see a big battle there. The Russians are going to have to decide, do they want to keep fighting in the, in the Donbass, taking a few kilometers here, taking very heavy casualties in so doing, or do they want to defend their land bridge and the access to the Crimean Peninsula? And as I assess it, I think they would have to shift troops out of the Donbass and defend the land bridge over around Herson and the Crimea. Related to that somewhat, uh, we're seeing anti-ship missiles coming into Ukrainian stores. They're not there for parades on May Day. They're there to use on the Russians. There are Russian ships firing cruise missiles into Ukrainian cities. They can be gone after. The missiles will defend Odessa. As I said, I think the Russians still have high hopes of taking Odessa someday. The missiles would make the blockade on uh, Ukrainian ports more costly. And in time, they could uh, imperil the Crimea by just making those naval bases at Sevastopol and a few others up and down the coast vulnerable to intermittent attacks from missiles. Back to you, Ranger Duck. Then on to you, Dean. I think that, uh, chiming in with all of my fellow panelists, I think we're going to see for the next several weeks grinding military operations. It would be truly horrible if they literally began to look like World War I with trenches and the rest. But I think both sides are going to be throwing troops into trying to take key territories, relieve pressure elsewhere. And that's going to really create the question, who burns out first? In the longer term, however... As this war grinds on, we're going to see some other commodity problems. We're watching the Russians basically say, we're not going to export neon anymore. And the problem there isn't for all of the bars, but rather neon is a key component for manufacturing microchips. So while Russia doesn't manufacture much in the way of microchips, certainly not for export, it is part of that global supply chain again. So not only are we likely to see food prices rise, but computer chips, which go into everything, rise. And in a way, they may actually be signaling Beijing, yes, you're the folks who manufacture lots of chips. Well, even if you're manufacturing them, you still need us as well. Finally, I would probably say to keep an eye out on European oil and gas purchases. Let's remember that uh, Medvedev in Russia said, I look forward to essentially a tripling of natural gas prices if the West decides to sanction me. Uh, The Russians recently cut off shell oil from Russian gas exports, I believe. So as Europe goes into summer, it is going to use less uh, natural gas, less oil for heating purposes, at least. But um, I suspect that a number of European countries are probably going to start purchasing excess as much as they can uh, from all sources to start laying in supplies for this winter. Because if this war is still grinding on, and it may well be, it could be a very cold, dark winter in Europe with a lot of folks suffering from rationing in a period of rising food prices and potential unemployment. That's my optimistic outlook for you there, uh, Ranger Doug. Well, we needed a little ray of sunshine, and that was a very little ray Thank you very much, Dean. Dr. Dave, over to you for your view. Yeah, I'm, I sound like a broken record here the last sessions. I think it's more of the same. Neither side has become exhausted yet. I think there's signs that both are 
sent in that direction. My concern is that the, the mobilization base of Russia, even though it's untrained and some conscripts and reservists, there's still people they can keep feeding into the mall. Ukraine, you know, it, it was said earlier about the territorial forces. If they're taking those casualties like that, that means they're fully committed. So, you know, how much does each side have to keep pushing forward? Uh, we're just going to have to sit and watch and see how it plays out in the next few weeks. But I do believe it's just going to be more artillery, more pounding their way forward. If the Ukrainians do, in fact, get, you know, sufficient means to do effective counterfire, it will have some impact. But four HIMARS is not, you know, a game changer. So I think we're going to see this continued grinding war of attrition. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dave. Then over to you, David E.A. <laughs> Once again, I'm in, in agreement with my doppelganger here. We're going to see more grinding stuff. I also think we're going to start seeing some more fractures in the kind of Western alliance against Russia as each of the states tries to determine the impact on their own interests of this conflict. I also think that we're going to have, um, you know, just more of the same, like uh, Dr. Dave said. And while I agree with uh, Dr. Dave, I also think we can do uh, on our show, and maybe in the coming week, a better job of really digging into the logistics of both sides, not just, you know, from the, the, the media perspectives, as Dr. Dave said earlier on, you know, we, we're getting a very slanted perspective, but try to reach out a little bit and see what we can find in other publicly available information that can let us know some indicators of how this grind is going. Because as he says, that's the key point. You know, which which one's going to get exhausted first? Great, Dave. Thanks. So now we move on to our last round, which is our closing statements. And we'll jump right back to Brian Downing, please. Over to you, sir. Well, I think we've reached a, a pivotal time where the optimism and the great fun with memes on the Ukrainian and Russian armies has gone down to a very hard, brutal war of attrition, mainly in the East. And uh, the optimism I had a few weeks ago is down a bit. I'm still optimistic about Ukraine's chances to win this out through greater discipline, morale, and weaponry. Remember, Russia is unable to replenish its weapons. Uh, In fact, their industries are shutting down because they don't have the capital, they don't have the electrical components. But we have shifted to a really dark time now. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that comment. Very nice. Dean, over to you, sir. I think that uh, one of the things that is going to be open to question, especially if Turkey continues its effort to leverage its essentially a veto over Swedish and Finnish joining of NATO, is going to be how NATO actually treats the future. Turkey is taking its stance partly because uh, Erdogan is um, an authoritarian leader, uh, but partly because they, I think, are taking advantage of a moment of leverage for payback, whether it is with regards to the EU keeping them out of the EU, whether it is uh, recent tensions in the Eastern Med, whether it is the American decision to shut down the uh, development of the Eastern Mediterranean gas pipeline. So, you know, Ankara would be foolish not to take advantage of this opportunity, but it is going to, I think, at some point, force a question within NATO of how does this alliance make decisions, because it is remarkably unwieldy, especially if we wind up with a Russia that is firmly anti-Western and a China that aligns with Russia in thinking that way. Uh, 
is the current structure of NATO viable? Not in terms of numbers of allies and things, but simply in terms of its decision making. Over to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dean. Then, Dr. Dave, over to you. We all love the story of the Mariupol as being compared to the Alamo. You know, the gallant defenders of Mariupol are just like the gallant defenders of the Alamo. And what we always forget is 136 highly trained, super frontiersmen, whatever, highly motivated. We're facing 5,000 Mexican regulars who weren't particularly well-trained and motivated, uh, but there were 5,000 of them. And so the question to me is that, can the Ukrainians keep persevering? And if we see fissures in that, what will we do to keep you know catastrophic collapse from occurring? Because if the Ukrainian army breaks, that army, the Russian army, that can't do combined armed fire maneuver, can certainly drive down roads really quickly, but there's nobody trying to stop them. And so it raises this specter of, what will NATO do to keep Russia from prevailing? And that's just a question nobody wants to deal with at this juncture, for good reason. I mean, because it, it has implications that are way beyond the Ukraine and the future of NATO or anything else. Regarding Turkey, you know, I heard somebody the other day say, well, maybe Turkey doesn't need to be a member of NATO anymore. I think that's kind of a, you know, a, not a very well-founded statement, which is a nice way to think. I think it's, not, it's pretty stupid. But, you know, there's people starting to think, why are we going to have this country in here with all does it obstruct, you know, two people can really make a contribution to the reason we exist in the first place. So I think there's going to be some tensions inside the alliance that aren't about the Ukraine and Russia that are going to be about, as Dean so rightly said, you know, what is the future of this alliance and what's its role against, you know, what is going to be the principal threat in the future, which is China. And particularly if China is aligned with Russia, will it be sucked into that just because it's, it's Russia? So I don't know. But the future, like Yogi Bear once said, ain't what it used to be. Because I'm smarter than the average bear. Yeah. Back to you, Ranger Doug. Thank you, Dr. Dave. And then, Dave, over to you, sir. I think that the future doesn't look particularly bright. You know, as we look at the way that Ukraine and Russia are, you know, battling this out, I'm going to be in the wait and see category as to how this affects, you know, the future of global geopolitics. I do, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer. Thank you. Back to you, Ridge Doug. Well, that was a great program, and thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Brian Downing, Dean Chang, Dr. David Johnson, and David Johnson. We had a great session tonight covering some very critical issues, and obviously the war is changing. The things that are happening right now are kind of like the proverbial earthquake under the ocean, like what happened in Pakistan several years ago. We don't know exactly where it's headed. It's starting to wear on people, and obviously it... Uh, our 15th episode, that means there's been at least 15 weeks of fighting. This is nothing compared to World War II. And in the Russian or Soviet style of warfare, things have not yet had a chance to work out. We're also watching countries that are obviously being supported by proxies elsewhere, a number of countries supporting each side. The world essentially hoping the uh, Ukrainians uh, can win, but what is winning? And uh, that will emerge in weeks to come. Remember that uh, we are using only open sources with this material. Uh, we do not draw on anything we know from any government sources. We're not interviewing anyone. We read just like you can. There are many publications out there that carry good information. However, as in many situations, all of us must use an analysis model to try to come up with the best set of facts that we can. It's also important to remember you could subscribe to this program. We're on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and others, 12 platforms total. We also have another program out there that's wounded but not broken with our host, Patrick Scroggin, an aviator who had a horrific helicopter crash in the night in Iraq during the war. 
Uh, he lost his leg. He recovered himself to become a super athlete, a super motivator, a wonderful interviewer. And he has a very compelling program on with us on Monday nights. Wonderful interviews, great guests. So uh, please catch his program as you can. We look forward to see what develops in the coming weeks, and we'll do our best to continue to present it to you factually and honestly. That's all for this evening. We hope to have General Grange back with us in the coming weeks. He's busy now and uh, doing some things that are very important elsewhere. Thanks again to our audience and our guests. Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, No One Left Behind. <laughs>